There's a particular moment overnight between the 6th and the 7th when the village pretty much is in the hands of the Germans by then. But a German officer wants treatment for a wound he has sustained and, and he won't take his pistol and holster off. And, and Bob says, well, you're not coming in unless you take the, the weapon off. And the Germans kind of forcefully saying, look, we've holding, we're holding the town. I can just push you aside and come in if I want. And Bob kind of says, because the guy, the guy spoke English, yeah, but you won't get my treatment. An excerpt from today's guest, speaking about a little-known incident on D-Day, will discuss the book Angels of Mercy with author Paul Woodage of World War II TV right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spirit YouTube channel. We've got bonus video material from podcasts plus tons of military history videos, including full-length documentaries. It's a great way to spend some time, and don't forget to subscribe while you're there. And click the bell icon so you'll be notified of all the great weekly videos we're uploading. Welcome back. Today's guest is an author, filmmaker, and battlefield guide. He launched the popular YouTube channel in 2019 called World War II TV where he interviews esteemed historians live from around the world, five days a week. His World War II book is called Angels of Mercy, about two medics from the 101st Airborne. And author Paul Woodage joins us now. Paul, welcome to the show. Hello, it's good to be back. Absolutely, welcome back. This looks like an excellent book. How did you learn about this story? Well, uh, I've been running a guiding company battlefield tours in normandy for 20 odd years and back in the early 2000s essentially we were looking for a stop to include after utah beach on the way to point du hoc and this coincided with when the village of angovillo plan that i wrote about began to start acknowledging this history it had with a memorial and a stained glass window and we got to know the mayor, me and my staff, my guides, and we realized that it was a really good little hum human story to add in, in between kind of massive great invasions. It's a human interest story, and we decided to incorporate it. And then from that evolved the idea of, of putting it into a book uh, form, mm -hmm. basically. Set the stage of the action around this church and, and this little town. It was sort of in between you know, the points of a lot of action. What happened in this town? Well, you, you, you said it yourself, it's in between things. Um, drop zone D is the drop zone that it sits beside, which is known by the French as um, the drop zone of murder or the drop zone death, la zone mordite in the French, which means the cursed zone. And, you know, it didn't really have an objective as such. It was in between places, a bit further south with the wooden bridges and the barquette locks, across the river and further north was kind of the, the causeways to Utah Beach. But Angerville Plan itself sort of sat in the middle. But what made it particularly fraught is the quality of Germans that were encountered there. There were some Georgian troops, you know, Ospitalian guys who were pretty kind of uh, ferocious. And then later on, Falschermjäger, 6th Falschermjäger Regiment guys who were pretty tenacious and, and, and good soldiers. So compared to some of the troops, other airborne units engaged on D-Day of kind of the coastal defending type people. The, those that were defending Angerville were a little bit more of a, of, a, of a problem. And it's not like either side needed the location. It just became an arena for conflict. Um, 
So running battles, they say the square around the church changed hands seven, maybe nine times on D-Day. In fact, I think it didn't so much as change hands as not really be in anybody's hands. It was just a continuous battle back and forth. And in the middle of this fierce fighting was the need to look after the wounded. And that's where the church came in with it, with two medics who, who, who were looking for somewhere to, to treat the wounded that were piling up in this fraught um, environment. These two medics from the 101st, uh, Ken Moore and Bob Wright, did you have a chance to meet them and speak with them in the course of writing your book? Um, Bob Wright a lot, yeah, spoke, spoke to him, met him, spent a lot of time with him in Normandy. Kenneth Moore, it was emails, occasional telephone calls, and then later on emails via his neighbor when he was starting to have computer problems. So I never actually met Ken face to face, but we got to know each other via, via um, you know, the, the internet and, and emails. But Bob I knew quite well. Um, and um, that was one of the things that spurred me on to, to do the book is that the two men who were central to it were still alive and still very with it. There were French people from the village who remembered it still around. And there were other 101st Airborne parachutes who'd been in the area who also could add things. And I thought, you can't do a book like this 10 years later because they'll all be gone. And we are at the position now where they are all gone. Everybody who was any part of this story has gone now. So mm. it was a bit of a race against time. Uh, and that was a situation lots of authors were in sort of 20 years ago is the veterans were in their 80s. Um, and rapidly reaching the, the old age to so get those stories down. So I wanted to get all of the elements, the American side, the French side, uh, together in one place. Now, these two men, did they sort of set up this hospital in the church on their own initiative, or, or what were the circumstances where they decided to do this? I mean, the simple answer is yes, although there is a officer who was attached to the 2nd Battalion 501st under Colonel Ballard, um, Ed Ulworth, who was also sent to, to go and find somewhere to look after wounded. And it, you could suggest that he had had the idea of setting it up, but probably by the time he arrived at the church, Bob and Ken had set it up of their own initiative. So there was an officer involved in the in in the process because Colonel Ballard recognised there was a need to find somewhere to treat the wounded. But essentially, yes, Bob and Ken chose the, the, the church itself. And the reason they chose the church is it was on a crossroads and it was right located to near where the wounded were coming in from. And with its wooden pews and big stone walls, it seemed a fairly logical place to start dragging in the guys that were that, that needed treatment. The unusual circumstance connected with this church is the two men also treated Germans that came in who were wounded. Speak a little bit about that. Well, I mean, it's unusual in the sense we don't talk about it, but it is usual in the sense that that was the, the oath. Although these are medics, they're not doctors. They haven't taken the proper oath of a professional. But the idea is is that you operate triage. You, you treat those people in need of attention first. And if the most wounded person that's, that comes in happens to be German, you, you would treat the German alongside the American or alongside the French person. So quite a lot is made about that aspect, but actually it, it is kind of normal practice. But yes, they, they fiercely um, stuck to that. What is more unusual is the fact they didn't allow weapons inside the church, um, that oh. Bob Wright particularly, once he'd um, pinned a little red cross to the door that he was carrying with him, this little little flag, 
he decided that's it. No, no, no weapons inside. He said the inside of the church is concerned with the, the, the dying and the wounded. The outside of the church is where the fighting is being done. So he had that rule there. So that got him into more trouble. Uh, there's a particular moment overnight between the 6th and the 7th when the village pretty much is in the hands of the Germans by then that a German officer wants treatment for a wound he has sustained and, and he won't take his pistol and holster off. And, and Bob says, well, you're not coming in unless you take the, the weapon off. And the Germans kind of forcefully saying, look, we've holding, we're holding the town. I can just push you aside and come in if I want. And Bob kind of says, because the guy, the guy spoke English, yeah, but you won't get my treatment. And so he kind of squares himself up in the doorway and, and won't budge. And this German sits outside for some time, maybe an hour or two, gradually bleeding and but refusing to come in and eventually he bent and he took his uh, he took his weapon off and he came inside but he refused any um um morphine or any um uh, of the of the treatment they bob feels the german were, was under the feeling that you know that they thought that he was going to be kind of drugged or something would give away oh. secrets of the war or something so he refused any medication um uh, sulfur powder or anything nothing just bandages but that to me was what set apart Bob and Ken is their their ethic to to keep the church away from the combat. Yeah. And interestingly, the same situation almost occurred a day later when the village is liberated, when an American artillery officer of the 101st wanted to use the church belfry to, for spotting for, for the, the Germans are falling back, and he wanted to get an observer up there to set to help you know direct right. fire his battery. And Bob said, no, it's an aid station. Uh, I haven't cleared the wounded out yet. There's still men in here who are, who are wounded and there are dead buried outside. The Red Cross is still there. You can't use it for for a military purpose. We've set it aside as an aid station. The Germans respected it. You you must respect it as well. So so Bob's principles apply to, to, to either side. Uh, once he'd established it as an aid station, that's it. He was very adamant about its, its, um, its status uh, regardless of what's happening outside. Sounds like he had a real force of personality there. He did. And, and interesting, the two, the two men were very different. And often when I see little internet articles about them describing how great friends they were, and I'm not saying they weren't friends because they would call each other on their birthdays and they did meet. They, I've got one photo of them together at a reunion after, I think in the, in the 80s or 90s. But they were more like brothers in the sense they didn't get on all the time. They, they had that single connection of being in the second battalion 501st and they'd both been medics but they were very different people ken kenneth moore from california was very californian kind of laid back six foot two um so an old oh uh, shucks kind of guy didn't really get very humble very very downplaying of his role there bob kind of came over with the jumpsuit on loved doing push-ups to impress people when he came back to reunion things like that so Bob, I'm not saying Bob was a show-off, but he was very proud of what he did. And so the two men were very different. And it's odd that they get kind of get described as a duo because they were, but they, they had their distinct differences. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, number one New York Times bestselling author Mark Greeny will be here to talk about his latest military thriller, Sierra Six. For this book, I kind of had an idea of going back into my hero, Fort Gentry's past. He was a member of a, of a paramilitary force and his call sign was Sierra Six, which is where the title comes from. I think my idea initially for this book was I'd like to delve into Court's past, not exactly an origin story, but uh, to show you some of his background. Right. And 
keep it with something contemporary at the same time. That's next time. Next time you're on YouTube, check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel. We've got bonus video material from podcasts plus tons of military history videos, including full-length documentaries. It's a great way to spend some time, and don't forget to subscribe while you're there. And click the bell icon so you'll be notified of all the great weekly videos we're uploading. So I think uh, brothers is a good description, because you can picture brothers kind of razzing each other and... You know, calling each other out. I mean, but when, for example, Bob didn't like it, but this sounds really awful about Bob, when I referred to Ken as a medic, because Bob said, well, he was a stretcher bearer, really, which is true, which is, which is absolutely true. Ken had had like two weeks training as a stretcher bearer and was an assistant medic, whereas Bob had done three months at Atlanta General Hospital to become a proper medic. So right. he felt that that status of being an actual medic was was worth recognizing and, and and ken didn't ken was always downplaying it ken almost didn't want me to put him in the book at all it was like well it was bob was doing most of it and and that was their interest i mean ken was the kind of in a sense the muscle they found this um wooden farm cart across the, the in the barn op or the farm opposite the church and it was that that ken was using to go up to half a mile away to pick wounded soldiers up and take wow. them back to the church this is a single person using a cart that's meant for a horse um, and Bob, who Bob was five foot five, Ken was six foot two. So right. it made sense that Ken was the one doing the, the heavy lifting, although Bob did go out as well. Um, so they, they worked very well as a duo in their in their different roles. Um, so, yeah, they, they they were special guys and they, they, they always kept in touch and they, they, they loved the fact that they had this shared experience. But that they their connection outside of it was a bit was it was they were just different different people living different lives essentially sure. yeah are there any uh, accounts that you found uh i know you had photographs for the book but were there any letters that recovering soldiers wrote about the atmosphere or described how it was because i was curious about sort of the american and french soldiers reactions to the germans coming in well, the main thing is I found this account by a guy called Elroy Hugh, who was one of the wounded in the church, via his son, um, Jim. And without that, actually, I couldn't have done the book. Um, something like 80 men were treated inside the church. And I was able to put names to maybe about a dozen of them, which, which I was really pleased to, but it's very, very low number. And of course, one of the things we have to accept is this was the first campaign for the 101st Airborne. Some of the men who were patched up in that church and went into combat again promptly would have been killed in Market Garden or Baston or into Germany. And in fact, one of the side stories is Bob, when he would go to the 501st or 101st Airborne reunions after war, he was always hoping that one day he'd bump into someone who would say, God, I'm glad it's you there, Bob, because you saved my life in that church or you saved my life in the on the dike in Holland. He never did. He never met anybody who he thinks is one of the guys he treated. And it's not that he wanted any kind of praise or anything. It was just that sense of satisfaction that someone had got back and had a good life. The Saving Private Ryan, did I leave a good life kind sure. of idea uh, that one of the guys he'd helped had made it, but he never he never met anybody. Or, or if he did, it was he didn't know he had, you know, it was, so, yeah. but this, this account by Elroy Hugh was, was the one that fleshed it all out. You know, he'd been wounded um, shortly after landing and kind of was hiding in the village in a kind of a bomb crater and was eventually picked up by a couple of other guys and taken to the church. And he talks about what was happening overnight. He talks about the screams of some of the guys who were badly wounded. He didn't know 
the names of the two men who actually died inside the church. It may have been three. There's, there's, a, there's a debate about a third soldier, whether he died in the church, whether he died after evacuation. I still haven't rectified that one. But Elroy heard the screams of the of the dying. Mm. And so his account came in there as well. And then a French lady who'd helped tidy up the church uh, a day or two after was the one who talked about pulling out the you know, the bloody bandages and things like that and, and, and explained a little bit more about the German side of it. So, you know, as you know yourself, with writing a book, it's, it's, it's detective work. You pull the threads in from different places and then try and, like a detective, make a single narrative out of it. Um, and, you know... It, it, no one's done a second book about Angervillo Plan, and I don't think anybody will. I get people say, "Oh, you've written a definitive book on Angervillo Plan." I say, "Well, it's the only one, really. It's, it's, it's the best and also the worst because there's only one." But now to go and do something again, how would you do it? The people, the people, the participants are dead. I don't think there's any archives available that I didn't already find. Yeah. So it, it, I was grateful that that I had these few accounts, and I. I used Facebook. I used um, uh, social media to just track down people who mm-hmm. were in the Second Battalion Five Hundred First and tried to make contact. And you know, was your uncle, was your grandfather wounded? And I, I managed to get enough to to pull together. Um, so I was very pleased. Yeah, it looks like a great book. I saw photographs as well inside the church, in a trailer to a to a program that had been done on it. The story. Are those? pews still there are they st- still kept with the blood stains yeah no they absolutely are and it's one of those things that when mm-hmm. i see little internet articles about there's still blood stained pews people are cynical about it. they go but it can't really be blood and there's a particular large blood stain that looks like it could be paint put on afterwards but actually a few years ago someone did take a little chipping away of the of the blood this with the permission of the, the village i hasten to add mm-hmm. and did a test on it under a under a microscope and it was definitely blood um and it had seeped in there and and there's another couple of patches on the floor there that definitely are i mean the the french lady had actually tried to clean up the church and, and had managed a, a, most of it okay but i guess you know how much how much spare material how many cloths did she how many buckets of water did you take in there and and and, and thankfully she missed a few bits you know when i'm taking a tour group in there and sometimes if it's if it's towards the end of a day and they're getting a bit tired they instinctively sit down on the pews and then i have to say actually you're, when i get to the blood side, i say well, actually you're, i say to my guy you're sitting on one of them they kind of feel they're shocked like, i know i like i like that in a way and so do the village they like people to come and connect mm-hmm. with it you know run your hand across the wood there you know see that right. blood stain touch it sit on it because it connects people with the history because when you're reading a book, everything is distant. Everything is via a separation of the word coming through to you. If you're in that church and you see bloodstains, I've seen it with groups all time and time again, when that seeing that bloodstain or bullet holes, you know, in other places is what yeah. makes it real. Yeah. And um, yes, and, and there's an impact on one of the stones, the flagstones inside the church where a mortar shell came through the roof during the fighting that didn't detonate. You can wow. literally see where it hit the ground and it crazed it and it went and Ken saw this thing land and it probably would have been an 81 millimeter mortar. That was the, the, the size of the German battery nearby. And if that goes off, you know, it's game over for the people yeah. inside the church because it would have been you know, a compact environment and it didn't go off. And they and Ken uh, or Bob, I don't know time in which one it was, picked it up and threw it out the window and it didn't detonate. And, <laughs> and when you see that 
that that flagstone there with the crazing in it, and you and you and you look up, and all I should point out the hole is still in the roof in the plaster. It's, you can see where it came there. in and see where it didn't go off. Yeah. And as a, you know, as you said, as yourself, as a writer, when you're putting that when you're putting that together, and you can put the photos in of where the bullet came, the boom, the mortar bomb came in, it 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 creates that validation of what you're writing. It reminds me of uh, going to Gettysburg and. I don't know if you've ever been there, but I have. You go through the town and you can see where the cannonballs hit some of the sides of the houses and the bullet holes, and they leave them there. They don't patch them up because they believe it's history, and I do too. No, absolutely. And uh, you know, living in Normandy as I do, I mean, I'm grateful that so much of the battlefields are pretty much as they were. Obviously, there are improvements. Road ha roads have to be built, schools have to be redone, and, things, and we lose a little bit here and there. And I'm very grateful that the French are able to to prosper and i don't ever say hang on it's they the french should keep everything exactly like it was that's not what world war ii was fought for world war ii mm -hmm. was fought for give the to give the people of normally the right to expand and they are very very good at memorializing the events of world war ii but sometimes you know if they need to get employment a business has to be built and it might encroach onto a battlefield because yeah. the reality about france's is that every inch of it was a battlefield at some point so you can say, well, we'll, we'll, make, we'll keep this bit as a preserved battlefield. But what about over the fence there? Someone died there as well. You know, so, oh, well, these are the, the eternal questions yeah. that, that with somewhere like France, where there's, you know, a thousand years of warfare, you can't keep everything as it was to honor the past. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It is, it is tough. Same with Belgium. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Is there, I want to ask you about a commemoration at the church or a plaque or something that, describes this incident yeah there's there's quite a lot now there's there the first thing done i think was a monument outside to the 501st that mentioned ken and bob by name um and the 80 combatants they they saved and then in, then they started doing stained glass windows all the windows of the, of the church have been blown out during the fighting mm -hmm. and as they got they found the funds and as they got donations and benefactors they gradually started putting the windows in and they've all been done now and so there's one with you know central paratrooper sort of descending in the middle. There's another one with um, uh, angels on it. There's one there that kind of has a ray of light and light coming back to France. Each one has its own kind of distinct kind of design depending on who funded it. Um, and there's an information board outside that I wrote the test text for that they're actually replacing this here because it's got damage in the sun. So oh. it, it's it's interesting that that it has now become a place and. You know, my little tour company and a couple other tour guides, we were going there when no one else was going there. And now everybody goes there now, or obviously not in a COVID normal year, which is quite, quite good. It's lovely to think that people are going there now. But also I kind of look back to the days when it was the few of us going there and it was like a special place. Like a secret. Oh, a secret place. And now everyone knows about it. In fact, people come, hey, are we going to go to that church where the bloodstains are? Because they read an internet article. They've seen right. a documentary about it. They've seen something. So... You don't quite have the surprise that we had years ago, but you know, in my case, I, I love telling particularly the stories of the of the two men who died there as well, and that was something I was able to to regret. You asked about letters. Yeah. Um, both of the men who died, or, or the two that I know died, um, Charlie Johnson and, and Henry Ostrovsky, both of them I was able to get communications via their family. So Charlie was writing home to his to his to his mum. And he was a 19-year-old, good-looking, kind of looked like a young Leonardo DiCaprio, was just loving having all the girls pay attention to him in England and loving the, 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 the different food he was eating. And it was all a big adventure to him. And that yeah. comes across in his letters. 
And Henny Ostrovsky was one of twins, and his relatives actually had been massacred in the Katyn massacre in 1941 in, in, in Russia, those back in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. he, he had, his twin was uh, flying the hump with the Army Air Corps, and Henry was very much more, um, oh, what would be the word to describe, kind of fatalistic, you know, kind of talking about him. He, he thought he was going to make it, but he was always asking letters, I don't, I don't know whether we will, and we've got to face this oh, enemy. And, yeah. and, and, you know, he died in the end, and and there's a, there's a there's a lovely romantic twist that I won't give away, but if people read the book, um, his girlfriend that he'd been writing to ends up, I won't spoil it, but there's a lovely yeah, sort of to that there. Yeah. And and when you can share the the letters of someone who died, as you've done with some of the books you've done, and show them where they died and explain the circumstances of how they died, and and particularly with this idea of Bob and Ken being just medics, as I said, Ken technically being a stretcher bearer, yeah, because stretcher bearer, yeah. the role of medics was essentially, I'm, I'm, I'm reducing it to its basic concept, was never to be operating independently on the, they were meant to be part of a medical battalion staff with surgeons and orderlies there, and then they would just be doing their job as assistants, essentially. They're, but what happened is they were the only two people with any medical training anywhere near there. And so people are being brought in with head injuries. In the case of Henry Ostrovsky, most of his face had been taken off by a mortar shell. Charlie Johnson had been hit repeatedly and uh, bullet wounds. And this is beyond what these guys, A, are trained to do, B, have the equipment to deal with. And, and, and this is going on. And, and indeed, one of the key things about the story is, is that Bob recognized that these two men weren't going to make it and couldn't give them or decided to not give them morphine because morphine had to be for the living. Oh, um, and he oh. put them in a side room behind the altar because he didn't want them. The, the men who were going to survive watch men die amongst them in the pews. He separated them so they would die away from the others. And he would explain to me how heartbreaking that decision was and how as he would hear them scream. In fact, it was Henry who would scream, I think, and Charlie was kind of quiet. And But he would hear them scream. He'd kind of walk across the church towards the doorway with a serrette of morphine, thinking I could go and take that guy's pain away. But then look at the men behind him who were going to survive, who would need morphine later yeah. on, and decided that it had to be used for the men who were going to live. And... But, and I should point out, Bob was 20 and Ken was 19, and, and they really shouldn't have been in a position where they are making these decisions. Yeah. You know, if, if we, you or I are injured in some horrific car accident, we are taken to some environment where there's professionals at all levels who have dealt with this before, who, who fall into a set of procedures. They've got the equipment they need. They've got the materials they need. They've got the... And and but this is two men without that and without that ability and that's to me what will always, even though I did the bulk of the writing you know over fifteen years ago, mm -hmm. um, will always be personal to me is just what these two guys had to do, um, yeah, they to, to try hard. and save lives. The book is called Angels of Mercy and it's available at the link in the episode description. And Paul, thank you so much for coming on. This was a great discussion. Well, again, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. It's, um, I, as you can tell, I, li I like telling this story and, um, and it's, um, it's very close to me. And it's even more sad now, as we said, that the fact that all the participants have now long since gone now. And 
In fact, I just had an email from um, one of the Ostrowski family a couple of days ago wishing me Happy New Year. So I've still got the connections with some of the people I wrote about, which is which is lovely. Um, That's important but, too. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and to see the fact that each year they have a ceremony now and uh, and it's got bigger and bigger and bigger as the story has got better known is, is, is very touching and very, very poignant as well. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, number one New York Times bestselling author Mark Greeny will be here to talk about his latest military thriller, Sierra Six. For this book, I kind of had an idea of going back into my hero, Fort Gentry's past. He was a member of a, of a paramilitary force and his call sign was Sierra Six, which is where the title comes from. I think my idea initially for this book was I'd like to delve into Quartz past, not exactly an origin story, but uh, to show you some of his background right. and keep it with something contemporary at the same time. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Child where you can share your comments about the show. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.